Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the Pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. John Barker has had a passion for fishing for as long as he can remember. Born in Liverpool, he and his family came to Canada when he was nine years old, and as a lad he fished rivers and creeks and explored the great outdoors. In the early 1960s, while he was studying at UBC and looking at the job board, he found what would turn out to be his dream job, as a guide at Painter's Lodge in Campbell River. It was this job that financed his education and introduced him to the person he calls the man of fishing, Roderick Haig Brown. John Barker went on to have a full career with C-SPAN, all the while spending some time every summer in Campbell River, first with only his wife Lynette, and later with children and grandchildren, staying at Hudson's Farm, owned by family friends of the Haig Browns. Over the years, John has thrown himself into volunteer work with the Taiyi Club of BC, Vancouver's Maritime Museum, Children's Hospital, the Pacific Salmon Foundation, the North Shore Coho Society, and the West Vancouver Streamkeeper Society. John joins us today from his home in West Vancouver to talk about Roderick Haig Brown and how John has been shaped and influenced by this relationship. Welcome to Taking Measure, John. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I understand you've got something you'd like to read for us. Yes, from the month of August, from Measure of the Year. Then there are the important anglers. Usually, they have invented famous wrigglers, or broken innumerable records, or won fantastic numbers of little buttons and badges, or thrown flies out of sight in competitions. And their tales of slaughter, occasionally with supporting photographs, are endless and appalling. For the most part, they are big men, very heavy, very sedentary, very much flushed with the celebrations of so many successes. I try sometimes to visualize them wading a rough stream bottom, but it doesn't add up. I try to think of them getting some fun out of fishing, but that doesn't add up either. Their fun is in getting something bigger and fancier than their fellow men. On the whole, they're interesting but monotonous. That's quite a passage, and and you picked that reading from the month of August. What is it about that chapter and that month that spoke to you that made you want to go there? Well, I was a fishing guide, as you mentioned earlier, and I did that for seven years to pay for my schooling. 
And we guided people literally from all over the world, as you uh, would understand. A lot of those people came from the United States. And sometimes the ego gets in the way of a fabulous experience. And we met all kinds. I met people from New England that were you felt like you'd become part of their family. And then you meet people from other parts of the country who are just wrapped up in getting the biggest possible fish and not really taking in the wonderful world of nature around them. I saw all extremes of that, and I learned from that as to how I was going to shape my life and what the things were that were important to me. Now, he starts by singling out the important anglers, and both words are capitalized for those who have the book and those who don't. Both words capitalized. This sounds to me, at its simplest form, like a denunciation of the Taiyi Club. Like, this is not a flattering picture that he paints. No, well, the Taiyi Club is a phenomenal institution. In three years' time, it'll be, it's be celebrating its its 100th anniversary. And the ethics of the Taiyi Club and the standards are huge. They're very high and, and very difficult for people to attain. And people that are normally after big catches wouldn't choose this as a way of spending their time. It's because we're doing it in many respects the same way it was done 97 years ago. And that's still the way it is today. The rules are still in place. You have to catch your fish rowing. But you're still going to get an element out there that wants to make that a, a competition. And perhaps the early anglers, I knew some of those that competed years and years after the club started. I guided some of them. And they were different. But there might have been a more competitive group that came. They were viewed as the sportsmen that came in from around the world. And that was the mission, is to get the biggest fish they could get of all the people competing each year. Now, while it might sound like a denunciation, as with all things Haig Brown, he likes to look at all different sides of the equation. And that passage might not sound very favorable, but this is a man who became a member of the Taiyi Club, as did Anne. And we're going to get to that story in just a moment, but let's back up a bit, John. You were at UBC, you look up at the job board, you see position for fishing guides at, at Painter's Lodge. Take us back there. Well, I was just finishing first year. I was heading for a, a degree in commerce, which I subsequently got. But at the end of first year, the job market was different in 1964. And I applied for three jobs off that job board. The fishing guiding position wasn't really available until the end of June, and here it was April. I had to find something else. So I accepted a job at Craigmont Mines, which was a little bit different working in the mill and, and fairly physical work and, and noisy, but I had this other dream waiting, and I was accepted there by the owners at the time, the Corbett's who'd bought the lodge the year before. And Corky, the owner, came down and interviewed me and one of my good friends, and we both got hired to become guides at Painter's. But that was the start of, of one of the most satisfying things I could have done in my life that uh, really changed where I went as a person and as a career. What sort of experience did you bring to this job? What sort of open rowboat fishing might you have done previously? Well, not very much rowboat fishing. I was a, a creek fisherman before I got a driver's license. I became a steelheader. I had access to salmon fishing. Admittedly, most of that was in southern British Columbia, Vancouver area, and, and up the Fraser Valley, but I had no Campbell River experience. But I think the head guide and the owner of the lodge knew that people that were passionate about fishing and had a good way working with people, which was key to satisfying the lodge's drive to attract people to the lodge, and, and it all worked out very well. And I, 
I kind of stayed in school because then I got my master's degree following the, the bachelor's because I was just so keen on continuing to do this. And the market in British Columbia by then had turned and the only jobs I could get were back east, Toronto, London, Ontario, and it weren't something, a place, a, a fellow with my passion for the outdoors, it, it wouldn't meet my expectations. So you and your friend, uh, we should bring him into this. Uh, you both applied together. You both got uh, jobs as guides at Painter's Lodge. Who are we talking about here? His name is Doug Piggott. And Doug became my best man when I got married. And uh, years later, we kind of went separate directions. But uh, was such a strong friend from my uh, middle school years all the way through till our guiding days ended and we went off in our own careers. So now you are a guide at Painter's Lodge, and the germ of an idea approaches in regards to Roderick Haig Brown. Take us there. I've been a long, devoted fan of, if that's the right word, of, of Roderick Haig Brown, and for many reasons. You know, I come from a British background, and some of that's woven into my blood and my way of doing things, as he was a, a young man from England when he came to Canada. By the United States, came to Canada, worked in, worked in the forest industry, just those values and the, the way he portrayed them in his books, it, it always resonated with me. And I, I felt, as many people would have felt, an attachment to him and an appreciation for him, the way he, he, he characterized the, the natural world. And he goes on, as you know, philosophically about family and friends and farming and whatever, everything around him. He, he wrote so well and, and expressed himself so well. And that connection, I, I just stayed with me right through my guiding days. I had occasion to talk to him on the telephone a couple of times. They were just short conversations, but he answered the questions I had. And so it just developed into a, just a deep feeling in me about what that man meant to so many people in his writings. Do you remember where you first encountered the writings of Haig Brown? This would be before you came to Campbell River. That's right. I had a couple of his books that were given to me, and they've stayed with me. The Western Angler was, was the first book I got, and so it's just something that stays with you. I had a number of other writers, Mike Crammond in his day, and a, a number of other books that I collected, and I still have all those sitting on my bookshelf and turn to them from time to time. And many people think of Roderick as just a strictly fishing writer, but he wrote a lot of other interesting books, too. Indeed, as we could say about Measure of the Year, is <laughs> far more than just a fishing book. Isn't it, though? Yes. So take us back then. Okay, you're, you're the fishing guide. We should clarify the rules were different in those days. If you're a guide, you're not a fisher. And I don't mean at the same time. The guides are not members of the club. How did that work? Yeah, that's true. There was a, a rule in the yearbook that specified that guides could not become members of the club. The easiest way to characterize what the club was in those days was look at it today. It's a community event. There's not many people that are coming into Campbell River to pay a guide to fish. And most people that are out there, the, the person holding the rod will switch places the following day with the person that did the rowing the day before. That's very characteristic of Thai fishing. I fished with Joe Painter for over 20 years and this is the young Joe who's in his 80s, but uh, we were have been a pair for an Thai pool for, for quite a few years, every early morning. But Joe rose one day and I would fish that day and then we would switch. And that is so prevalent today. Contrast that to the days when Roderick Haig Brown would have done some rowing and the old expression, you know, this fella carries the gun, but the guy with the big person who's come in from the outside, he's the one that gets to shoot it. And it's the same thing. The, the guys were guides. They were paid to do their job. They were very good at it. 
There was a native participation in that. And out of the people in the town that did guiding, and some of them must have been extremely skilled because they certainly uh, showed the results. But that was the difference. So it was a sportsman's club. This is the way Joe Painter characterized it to me. He said it was a sportsman's club. And he said people that were in the resort business, people that were guiding, and some of them had commercial licenses. And the, and the rules specifically said those people could not become members. Now, as the club transitioned, of course, they moved with the times, and that was uh, modified in the early 60s, probably a large influence by Dr. Dick Murphy, who became president in 1966. And that's when it became possible for somebody like Roderick Hay Brown to become a member. At some point, you get it in your head that you're going to get Roderick Hay Brown into the Taiyi Club. Yes, yes. I was a working fellow and a really good friend of mine from our guiding days and stayed friends through university. He was in forestry and graduated in that area. And we stayed friends. And I, I said to him one day, you know, we should think about trying to get Roderick Haig Brown into the Taiyi Club. What if I write him a letter and say, would you be interested in going out and doing this? We both kind of knew we probably wouldn't hear anything, but I crafted a letter and I sent it late in that year, 1974 to Roderick Haig Brown. And I gave him some reference of people in the town because he wouldn't remember my name necessarily from a phone call, but I did that. And lo and behold, I was just absolutely surprised. The phone rang. It was in the fall and it was him on the phone. He was in Vancouver for the International Pacific Salmon Commission meetings. And he said, I've checked you out. You seem to know what you're doing. Let's, let's do it. So we set August the following year, the August the 16th and the 17th, of 1975 were going to be the dates we would row together. And we did. So take me out into that boat. You must have felt like there's a little bit of pressure here, maybe. You're, you've got you've got one of your idols in the boat with you, and you're determined to get him into the club. John McFarlane and I, the name of the fellow that was on this adventure with me, had agreed that we would row early in the morning ourselves to tune up. You know, we're working fellows. We, you know, hadn't fished for a couple of years in Taiyi fishing. We've been up to Campbell River lots. And so we said, let's go out for a tune-up tide. And then I rowed John to a, a 30-pounder, 30 on the nose. It qualified. He's already a member of the club. We looked at each other and said, well, that was brilliant. There's our fish for the weekend. We're only here for two days. And then we met Roderick Haig Brown at noon at Painter's Lodge and greeted each other and introductions and all, and off we went to the rowboat. But it was agreed with John and I that we both keenly wanted to be the guide that got Roderick Hay Brown into the club. And we decided, okay, we're going to do the ebb drift, which, strange as it sounds, you're rowing south, but the current is drifting you north. You're backing up down toward the Seymour Narrows along the bar. And I rode the first tide, and then John rode the second. I rode the third tide. And John rode the fourth, and it was on the fourth drift that the rod went down. I was fishing, and I was on the outside rod. Roderick was on the inside rod, and his rod went down. He nailed it, and off we went to play this fish. What was the battle like? Well, I looked at my notes, because I'm a prolific note-taker, which uh, is embarrassing, but it's the way I am. No, that's why I ask. It was an hour-and-a-quarter fight from start to finish. And uh, so this is 1975. He, he fights this fish. We drifted down to the dolphins. A lot of the time it stayed under the boat, which is problematic. He's trying to move them or you're trying to row away from them. But if the fish gets that in its mind and it's sort of angled down, it's very, very difficult. You'd rather have them out on an angle where they'll tire themselves. But they can sit for a long time under the boat like that. 
And eventually this fish came to the surface and John McFarland was on the oars, positioned us. I did the netting and looked at Roderick Hay Brown and he gave his assent to, we're going to keep this fish. And so I bonked it on the head and we motored back to the club and weighed this fish in. And what did it come in at? 38 pounds. So he now qualifies for the club. I take it all three of you were quite pleased with this outing. Oh, delighted. Absolutely delighted. It was a terrific experience and so fulfilling to achieve that. This would have been, I'm thinking, the last summer before he passed away. Yes, he did. He died in October the following year, 1976. You had an opportunity to go out and help Roderick Haig Brown get into the Taiyi Club. Your acquaintance with him did not end there, though. You had a chance to visit at Above Tide here. That's correct. Yeah, He invited us, uh, John McFarland and I, to his house for dinner. And so we went up there at dinner time, and he said, well, first of all, we've got to do some fly casting. So John, who is a very competent caster and I don't need to talk about Roderick. Everybody knows about his skills, which are second to none. And I'm sort of mediocre, but we've debated in the last month what he put on the lawn. And I've talked to Alan and I've talked to Mary and I've talked to other people. And, and people say, well, it would have been a wine glass. I said, I don't recall a wine glass. And that's tough to stand up in the, on a lawn. And especially if you hit it a few times with the fly. So we finally settled it. It was probably either a hat or a ring, but none of us could sort of put our finger on what it was. It didn't matter. But there we were casting on the back lawn at his home, and that was pretty special. From there, we proceeded to the library, and he said we'll have a scotch before dinner, which I thought was very civilized of him, and we enjoyed that. And Anne had to go out. She was introduced to us, but she couldn't stay. She had a meeting, so we're getting on to a little bit past dinner time after all this other uh, celebration. And so we sat down and had dinner with him at his house and then back to the library and uh, another drink. And then we were on our way to rest up for the, the fishing the following morning. Now, we spoke earlier and you talked about what it was like being in the study here with Roderick Haig Brown as the conversation revolved, not surprisingly, around fishing. And his fingertip control of everything in the study that had something to do with fish. Take me back there. I can't relate the specific items we talked about that day, but it seemed like there was so, like any agent fishing at, at any time, there's always contentious issues, the things that are going on and people's theories and government decree or absence of government, like the things that you just are passionate at the time. And it didn't matter what we brought up. He was on his feet, over to the shelf, rifle through the books, pull this out, open it at a certain section. I was just amazed. You know, what it was I? It was in my 20s, and this gentleman was 67 years of age. And he's darting around like a kid, pulling all of these out. And so specific and so... He made you feel at home. He was not this person on a pinnacle looking down on you. He, he was your friend, and he, you just had that feeling, and he shared it. And that was magical about him, because when you actually meet someone of these, I would say, superstars, it's way out there at the top. And it's so diverse a man for all the things he did when you read about his careers. It was something. So that's my recollection of our time in the library. Some good scotch, but some great discussions with backup evidence as he pulled these books down and opened them. And yeah, we can all imagine that scene going forward. Now, if I understand correctly, he had his experience as a guide as well. He, I believe he rode Anne to a tie. Yes, he did. In 1934, he rolled her to a 33-pounder. 
and I checked the records through uh, one of the club's historians, Norm Lee, and he confirmed there were two other fish that Roderick Haig Brown guided, which qualified for the club. So those three fish he guided. So he was declared a guide. So that's what became problematic about somebody rowing him into the club until those rules changed. Well, because that was going to be one of my next questions. That's a, a huge stretch of time between him guiding and to a Tai and then you guys guiding him to a Tai. That's 30, 40 years or so. I've always known that his passion were rivers, streams, as opposed to the ocean. I mean, that is really where his heart is. And when you read about his description of his streams, and I've done a fair amount of it myself, but it's just so much there. Somebody plunking around on the ocean, especially on the West Coast where you're out in deep water, it's just not the same as somebody being on a river, as he's expressed. The closest I can offer to that in Tai fishing is was written up when Van Egan did his, his book, River of Salt. And he asked me if I would take him fishing to show him the flood rip, which is like a river. You've got the flood tide coming down. There's a rip there. You've got water back eddying. And that's pretty exciting. Then he had a photographer and a little inflatable nearby, took some photographs of that scene, and it was a, a bit of a wind blowing, so these waves are curling by. But that's as close to a, a river experience in a rowboat uh, that, I could, that I could offer. But Hig Brown just had that same feeling, and, he, and the conversation we had in the rowboat led along some of those lines, too, of the things that were around us and the things we were looking at. And just very observant man. There's a magic to rowing for the Tai during the Tai season when that area is in a good year, nice and full of big fish. And as you row along peacefully, these you keep hearing these large slapping noises as these things are launching and slamming back into the water all around you as if to remind you this is what you're fishing for and you haven't got one on the hook yet. It's a magical time to be out there. What sort of conversation do you recall as you rode the tides with Roderick Hake Brown? What, what did you find to talk about? The one thing that stands out in my mind as a youngster, I think I was in grade 11, I, a neighbor worked for Fisheries and Oceans Canada, and he said, we've got a project to collect pituitary glands from sockeye salmon. You'd be out on a saner for a week. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. So <laughs> not knowing what a, a much about traveling on a same boat, but I knew what the uh, the business was all about. They put me on the same boat and we ran out to uh, straight Juan de Fuca from Granville Island. And I still remember the boat. It was called the Silver Viking and it had a champagne system so they could chill the fish. And my job was for fisheries. They gave me a dry ice and they gave me a little screwdriver type ratchet thing that would take out the core of the pituitary gland at the brain. And that was my job. But this was my experience with same boats. And I made the comment to Roderick Hay Brown. I'm thinking very knowingly here. And I said, Oh, I see a same boat down off Cape Mudge there. And he said, yeah, I've just been watching that. He says, I mean, there's nothing you could tell him that he wasn't in, in touch with and knew already. A thought that occurs to me is that you know, maybe if we go back in time, it might have been the pursuit of the Taiyi and the Taiyi Club that in many ways put Campbell River and salmon fishing in Campbell River on the map almost 100 years ago, as we look in terms of the Taiyi Club. And yet, there's the second part of the equation, which is the river. And you could say Haig Brown himself was largely responsible for 
adding the river pursuit to the Taiyi club that was already here. People who came to Campbell River maybe to fish for the big Chinook off the mouth of the Campbell might have been in some ways recruited into the other great pursuit here, which is the fly fishing in the river itself. Do you think maybe there's a connection there? I think there could be. It would be wrong for me to speculate because I, I didn't know the people at that time and what their interests were. But it's it's probable that would be an element of those ardent fishermen that would want to do the fly fishing too because of the reputation that the Campbell had developed through Roderick Hague Brown's writings. Hague Brown, it has been argued, is maybe better known now than he was when he was alive. The word has spread farther. Certainly, the message, years ahead of its time, is far more well-known now. And this was a, a Brit who came to the States and then found his way up into Canada. So there's a bit of a cosmopolitan side to him. And often overlooked, I think, from those of us up here in the Campbell River area, is the impact he had further down the West Coast, uh, say, into Washington and Oregon. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, a, a fellow that I guided with years ago lives in Oregon. You know, the salmon trout steelheader and Frank Amato and the people uh, in Oregon that I didn't realize the profile was so high down the West Coast until I talked to this friend of mine that was, was living down there. And uh, he was living in Thule Lake at the time. And my wife and I visited him while I was in grad school in, at Seattle. And, oh, my gosh, we, we talked a lot about Roderick Higg Brown. It's just he, he's an icon all over the coast. And I'd be stretching it to say worldwide, but I don't think I'd be incorrect by making that statement in fishing circles. He's so well known. In fact, you've referred to him as the first coastal conservationist. Well, that's right. And I've always, those words have just always flowed from my mouth. Today, we would call him an environmentalist, but I, I don't think that phrase or that expression existed in those days. It, to me, he was always a person protecting the estuaries. That was his big calling. It had been so badly damaged and, and abused, and people know that today. But it was a convenience for the forest industry uh, to be able to manage their logs, sort them, places to dump them. And the toll they took on that habitat was, was difficult. It was just over the top. Those things have changed. But he was speaking at a time when it wasn't popular. We were resource-based only, and you had to have that if you were going to have that economic wealth around you. You started as a young man coming to Campbell River to be a fishing guide. But you kept coming back to Campbell River and staying at Hudson's Farm. That was the start of a tradition, I guess, a family tradition. Yes, it was. I was married in 1969. We had a family shortly after in the 70s and had two boys and a girl. And the boys worked on the dock at Painters and they became fishing guides. My daughter would lease a horse from the, the Hudson family and did that for seven years. And today owns two horses in Fort Langley, so it never left her and... Our sons are still active in, in fishing and keen on it. And I think the people in Campbell River became good friends, even though it was seasonal. I bought property in Campbell River. My plan was to retire here to Campbell River, but that escaped us when all our children became employed in Vancouver. And then grandchildren show up, and my wife and I had a crushing decision to make. Do we sell our property in Campbell River, which we did, so we could be close to family? But at Painter's Lodge and that history and all the years on the Hudson's Farm, Diana Kretz and Keith Hudson, good contacts, good people, just very special in our lives. 
you at some point quite early on, I suspect, as a guide, appreciated the Taiyi Club. You have gone on to spend many years involved in the Taiyi Club. You were vice president for several years, as I recall. That's right. Even as a Vancouverite, and the club was transitioning more into a local organization when I was guiding. But I was asked to come on the board, and it was Dick Murphy that suggested that, and I accepted, and I held the vice president position for 22 years, believe it or not. Usually your vice president is a successor, obviously, uh, to the president, but I never felt that was appropriate. I'd love to have done the job, and it's probably unfair to call myself this, but an outsider. I think there's so many issues that the club do now that are year-round compared to the way it was back in the days of the sportsmen arriving. It was very seasonal, and not a lot went on in between those uh, tournaments. And it has been this way for probably 30-odd years. It's very much a community club, and they're doing wonderful things for the club and for the community and for environment in the work that they do. And I know a lot of the board members from over the years, they've done a terrific job in advancing the club's values, but also the protection of the environment and enhancing habitat as well. Well, you could have had no better reference than to be recruited by Dick Murphy, one of the saviors of the Taiyi Club when it had come upon really hard times. That's right. It could have ended because of the, as much for the change in the composition fishing, the, the drop in numbers, you know, you're back to pre-hatchery. And also the boats that we use, they're all built by Ned Painter. They were wooden and they were all falling in disrepair. And between Joe Painter and Dick Murphy, they made a mold and they started producing some boats and other, other people got involved in it. And then the fellow in Victoria, Harold on it produces the Thai spirit and all modeled right after the, the 14 foot clinker builds that uh, Ned Painter built for many years. And so that was an element that had to work to keep the club going. That type of boat, the way that was built with the transom, the shape of the boat, the lap strake hull, they were just absolutely perfect for that kind of fishing. Now, aside from the Taiyi Club, you've been very involved in enhancement, conservation, uh, the Pacific Salmon Foundation, North Shore Coho Society, West Vancouver Streamkeeper Society. I see a theme here. <laughs> you know, the resource has given me so much. I mean, I'm 76 today, and I, I can't think of a day where I didn't have an interest in fish and, and habitat and the rest of it. I, I've lived that my whole life. And so there's a point where you, you look at yourself and say, well, it's time to give back. I mean, this, this uh, resonates with a lot of people that have had the pleasure of the type of things that have gone through my life. So it was uh, John Woodward, who's a local resident in Campbell River now. He started guiding just a few years after me, but he encouraged me to go on the Pacific Salmon Foundation board. And I did that for 12 years. And then after I got involved in, uh, retired at the age of 60, and I retired, I worked then as a volunteer for West Vancouver Stream Keepers. And at that time, I thought, well, I can't be doing both because West Vancouver Stream Keepers are a recipient and Pacific Salmon Foundation is a funder. So I can't be in both camps and be on the board of both. So I let go of the position with PSF and took over as a director with West Van Stream Keepers and subsequently became the, the president of that organization. Now, you came to Haig Brown in your youth through his writing. You then got to meet him, actually get him into the Taiyi Club. Measure of the Year, you'd read other works of his first. Where does Measure of the Year stand among those in your eyes? It's different because he walks you through a lot of 
issues and observations that are not creek and not fish and the pleasure of those. That philosophical look at, at the world, I just think he was so spot on with things. The references to family. You know, his, his mission in life was to be a writer. You think of all the other things that he's done. But writing, he wanted to make that a career. There's no doubt about that. And he excelled at that. I thought we're so fortunate to have somebody of that capacity within our own backyard, basically. Referring to himself as a writer who fishes as opposed to a fisher who writes. Yes, that's good. And measure of the year being maybe the best evidence of that. Yeah, I would say so. So you have worked in many different capacities in terms of enhancement, conservation, and so forth. You've also been among those who have helped to spread the word of Haig Brown. You haunt some librarians, from what I hear. Oh, (laughs) it hasn't happened yet, but I promised myself. Diana Kratz gave me a list of the books, which you can find easily enough. It reminded me of, of a time I was at the library looking for a certain book. This is our own West Vancouver Memorial Library. And honestly, I was embarrassed to find how sparse the collection is. And I let that drift out of my mind. But every youngster should pick up a Haig Brown book. And every parent, when the child's too young to read, should have that experience. And so it's a mission of mine to go in and see the, the head of the, the library and say, it's time to remedy a, an oversight here. This man should be on our shelves and available to the public. I do quite a bit of volunteer work with high school students surveying returning adult salmon. It's an unusual notion to think in a city the size of Vancouver and with all the urbanization that still runs, but we still have a number of our creeks that that receive salmon every year, and working with the students is so special. But be able to transition what I've learned over to them is really special. And we have a lot of foreign students, and this is a first experience. And a Korean student gave an address to council a few years ago, and he said, I come from Seoul, where our forests are built out of concrete. They're all towers. I come to Canada, and my gosh, look at these trees. There are things that we kind of take for granted. You know, it's when you go somewhere else, you realize how special it is. You hear a story like that that had the counselors just absolutely in, in the palm of his hand talking about how special the world is that we live in. You spent your time out there in the Taiyi pool <laughs> as a guide and being rowed by your fellow guides. Did you have an opportunity to explore the river as a fly fisher? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's it's summertime, so for the pink salmon run, everybody has their own kind of wish for activity with pinks. I prefer to go up to the pump house where it's non-retention and it's fly only, and I'm I'm just so happy doing that. And that solitude, that's what I'm looking for. But the regulations allow people to to cast other gear and, and retain, which is fine by me, but it's wonderful that they set places aside that... People that don't really mind if they do or they or they don't catch fish. It's just the pleasure of doing it. And with a pink salmon run the size of the, the Campbell and the Quinsome, you, you really can't go too far wrong. It's very pleasurable. Take me back, if you would, to that evening of being out on the lawn at Above Tide, casting flies with the fly fisherman of his time, certainly in many people's eyes, uh, one of the best ever. And whether it was a wine glass or a, or a hat, what was it like watching him throw a fly? 
Oh. You just admire it. I mean, it's so good. You can't even ask for a pointer or two. I know he would give it to you, but it, it, there's no way you could come close. It's just what he did naturally. I mean, he was so gifted. And to do that was fun. And I know this friend of mine, John McFarland, I mean, he kept pace nicely, but we both agreed there was only one master on the lawn that evening. <laughs> what a special evening that must have been. It was terrific. It just stays with you. And I, I didn't comment on the on the on the, the gifts he gave us. He gave us each three books, Fisherman's Spring, Fisherman's Summer. And then at the end of the trip, uh, he said, come on by for coffee in the evening on the day that we were returning to Vancouver on the Sunday. We fished on the Sunday, didn't get anything. And then we, he asked us to come by and he gave us each a copy of A River Never Sleeps. And he, he wrote an inscription in front of that book, which I, I just treasure. I, I think it's wonderful. Can I read that to you? Oh, please. It's from A River Never Sleeps for John Barker, who feels that fish should be registered and fishermen on the record with warm thanks for an elegant row, Rod Hake Brown. That's pretty awesome. I just treasure that. And it's a great book, too. (laughs) A man who feels that fish and fishermen should be registered. That has a very official sound to it, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. He knew the purpose of our mission. In our eyes, we went to the moon and back. It was that good. And it sounds completely counter to where we started this conversation, where he was writing about the so-called important anglers. Like so much Hague Brown that I have encountered, you hear one side of an argument, perhaps, and then he so eloquently spells out the other as well. He's not a man to to ignore other viewpoints. And I think he shows there in that inscription his appreciation for the club, for the pursuit, and for those who took him out there. Yeah. For the most part, the community is strongly behind it. But there's some that feel that, uh, you know, should you really be doing this? And I asked Haig Brown about that, you know, about the what's the risk to the run with us taking these fish? <laughs> My wife reminded me of what he said to me because I'd forgotten this. And she said... Hig Brown said to you, if the Thai Club members think they can do harm to the Campbell River run, they're flattering themselves. That was his line. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, and that's probably true. Our our numbers are, are low compared to the size of the run, but it's the it's the way you're doing it that you don't mind stacking the odds against you. Have you been out in the Thai boat in some time? Yeah, well, out this summer. Yeah, ah. yeah. I was out there with... Uh, I was going to say rowing or fishing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Only rowing. I didn't put the uh, tie in the boat this year, but that's just a, a treat if you, if you get that far. But I was in the boat with uh, John Woodward rowing and R.D. Berger, who's well known to the club and the community, and he got a 33-pounder, so that was pretty special. Indeed. Uh, very well-known members of the club. Yeah, Terrific. John, I got to thank you for spending so much time with us, sharing so many wonderful memories of, of Haig Brown and the club and your impressions of him. It's been a marvelous conversation. Have we missed anything? Have we left anything out that you'd like to add? If I could just say this about the experience, and I started to talk about the, the high school students, but this experience taught me something at a young enough age that I've never forgotten it and I've applied it to my life. If you have a good idea about something, don't procrastinate. Don't dwell and think about it. Get on with it. And your heart will tell you 
You can think of a lot of people that have created and invented a lot of things, right? I don't think Steve Jobs sat around wondering about the iPhone or any of the other computer (laughs) issues he dealt with. But I think about that experience and the fact that I had the good sense and the courage, if you will, to write to him and ask if he would be willing to share this experience. And he saw merit in the purpose and he responded. He was 67 when we wrote him. And the fact that he passed away the next year, if I dallied and, and thought about it and procrastinated, it never would have happened. We would have lost him. He died in October of 1976. So there you have it. It's that simple sometimes. It's within your grasp. But we're busy doing this, doing that. And there's something we just seize the moment and it worked out absolutely perfectly. And thank goodness he did. When you did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> John, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us and sharing your ideas. Keep up the good work with your stream keepers, your co-host society, and keep coming back to Campbell River. Well, thank you very much. It's been a, a real pleasure to be invited to do this, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for letting me share this with your audience. And thank you, too. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. You can link to the Haig Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Haig Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.